make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing it seemed in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to Entertainment Business Wisdom with your host, Kaya Alexander. Welcome, welcome. I'm Kaya Alexander, host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom podcast. Really excited to be here today with my special guest, Mark Stolaroff. Mark is an independent producer, consultant, and film instructor who specializes in micro-budget production. Included in his 13 producing credits are the recent Driver X, which was released theatrically by IFC Films, and the Last Days of Capitalism, the directorial debut of writer-director Adam Mervis, the screenwriter of 21 Bridges and National Champions. Stolaroff was formerly an executive at IFC's Next Wave Films, where he provided finishing funds to exceptional low-budget films, including the first features of filmmakers Christopher Nolan, Joe Carnahan, and Amir Barlev. Stolaroff teaches micro-budget filmmaking through his no-budget film school, which he founded in 2005. Mark, welcome. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you are encyclopedic in your knowledge of filmmaking. And, we'll see. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Well, I already, I've already it's talked trapped to up there somewhere, you know. You you know. Are. Uh, it's getting it out. <laughs> no, you are. I'm excited to get to learn from you today. Just to set it up for anyone who may not know what it means, how do you define micro-budget filmmaking? I'm glad you asked that question because I actually, when I teach my, I had this two-day class that I haven't taught in a in a couple of years or maybe maybe even more than that with the pandemic and whatever, but it was the, it was kind of my flagship class when I started teaching no budget filmmaking in, in 2005. Um, but one of the first things I talk about is what is a no budget film and what, what number do you think it is? And do a little bit of interaction with the audience. And Does it um, mean zero? <laughs> yeah. It, is, it, is it zero? Is it, you know, whatever. And, and then I do this little, it's not a, I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings or might make fun of people, but it's like, you know, some people go, it's $5,000. And I'm like, okay, great. So if you have 7,000, if it's, if you make a $7,000 movie, that's a big budget movie. And if someone says $200,000, then I say something like, oh, so who here has $200,000 to make a movie? And obviously no one you know, generally raises their hand. And if they do, then everybody talks to them later. You know? <laughs> right. um, but the idea, the, the thesis of my class, and this is the way I like to think about it and just in general, is it's the amount of money, uh, the, the amount of money that defines a no-budget film is the amount of money you have available to you right now to make a movie. So not like, oh, I think I can raise um, you know, $200,000 but I have I have fifty thousand dollars I saved up, or maybe you could even say 
I have, you know, $10,000 I've saved up. I'm pretty sure I can get $30,000 in a one month Kickstarter campaign. So I would include something like that. Okay. But, but so my a little whole, bit of including of the crowdfunders. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, because I think that, you know, it's, it's so, you know, quote, quote, easy to get money now from, from crowdfunders. I mean, it's a lot of work and whatever, but, but I just had, you know, friends that just, just raised $52,000 for a, a documentary feature. And, and so it's, it's all doable. Um, but the idea, again, around this idea is that you are not going out, at least if you're taking my class, you're not run, you're not going out and spending a year raising equity financing or going to foreign markets or doing all that kind of stuff. Um, you're, you're saying, I have this much money. This is money that I don't need to pay rent with. Um, I can throw it away and I will, you know, I'll, I'll survive. I'll live another day. And I just want to make a movie with it. And what kind of a movie now can I make with whatever that amount is? And, and, you know, the, what I teach is you can make a, some kind of a movie with any amount. I mean, it may not be the movie you most want to make. Um, and I, you know, if you, you know, in the first two hours, I kind of go through this whole process and and we come up with this idea that there's a one and only movie that you're going to make with that ten thousand dollars that you might have. Um, it's not that you can't make every kind of movie. Of course, you can't make every kind of movie. But we're going to try to figure out the one unique film that your resources, your situation um, gives you, and and go out and try to make that movie. So that's that's really the basis for the class that I teach. Is there a strategy behind that? Of you're going to now go make the one unique movie that you can make to leverage yourself into a better positioning in the industry or just to have it to finish it to have it to be able to put out there to get reps what's the strategy it's a, well it's a couple of things so i like to think that you know i another second probably first thing i tell them before the budget number is you're not going to make any money doing this um right. you are not going to make money on this film if making your money back is like the metric for success you will you will fail 99 out of 100 times and, and that's not, a, and it, but yet yeah, it shouldn't be the metric for success because, you know, and I show a list of filmmakers, many of whom I worked with or knew back when I was doing, you know, the next wave stuff, which was now getting to be a long time ago, back in the late nineties. But um, those, you know, I worked with filmmakers, you know, David Gordon Green, I didn't work with, but I certainly knew him very well. Uh, we almost did his film and, and um, you know, did he make money on George Washington? I don't think he did, but he, but it launched a very, very successful career. And, and now Chris probably did make money on, on following um, Joe Carnahan didn't make money on blood guts, bullets and octane. Um, but these, you know, there's a long list of filmmakers who, who launched their careers with no budget films. They didn't make money on those films, but then their second film, you know, or their third film or fourth film or whatever other people paid for and that got them where they're going. And so the whole point of, um, of my classes, you know, don't worry about the money part. You know, just assume you're going to lose it. There's other reasons for doing this. Um, so for some people, it's about like they're 40 years old, like you said, and they they had another career and 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 they always wanted to make a movie, and now they just want to make a movie. And they've been it's been killing them. It's been eating them up. And so it's like great. We're going to figure out how you you know what that movie is, and you're going to go out and make it. And then if it's successful or not successful, maybe that's not even important. It's just the fact that you did it, and now you you know. If you if you didn't like the process, you can move on with your life, you know, or you can decide, oh, my God, this is my life's calling. I really want to do more of this um, uh, for, for a lot of people that that's what it is. But um, it really depends. I mean, if you you know, if you're going to be a. a if you want to make the kind of film that gets into Sundance and it's not necessarily commercial or you're taking that risk that, you know, it's, 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 it's ostensibly not a commercial movie, 
but it could get get you that next level because it gets into a film festival like Sundance, then there's a certain kind of a movie to make. And I think the process that I teach really can push you to, towards making that kind of a movie because it, the what we what we come up with in the class is we say, you know, you're going to write down on a piece of paper uh, uh, all the re- all the things you have available to you to make a movie with. Um, this is and I didn't make this up. This is not this is, you know, El Mariachi, um, you know, uh, kind of stuff. Um, but you write down the you know, start with like locations and and props and set pieces and um, actors and equipment. And you write all that stuff down and you go, OK, these are the things that I have for free that I can make a movie with. So they don't cost me anything. Um, and the more you put on that list, the l- less expensive your movie is going to be. Right. And then, and then I tell them to make another list. And the other list is a little bit, it's a little more complicated maybe to understand, but it's this idea of you're going to write down your limitations. You're going to say, these are the things that I, these are things that I don't have. Um, uh, and we're going to turn those limitations into rules. And I like to use the Dogma 95 rules as an example. And if you're familiar with Dogma 95, um, you know, they have these 10 rules that these these Danish filmmakers came up with that they say we're going to make our all our movies with these 10 rules and they, and if you look at those rules they looked impossible they like how could you even make any movie at all with those 10 rules and then the first movies that came out of that process were like in Cannes and one Palme d'Or and are you know the celebration is an amazing movie and then give, them, give people, us an example of one of the rules yeah so uh one of the rules was uh first of all no lights can't light anything um can't use lights you have to you can't bring props onto a location. They just, you have to use whatever props that just happen to be on the location that you're shooting. Um, you can't separate the sound from the picture. So you can't add sound in post. You, every, if you have music in a, in a scene, they have to be playing that music. And obviously if you can't edit that scene or you're chopping up your music, there's all these like things. And they may have cheated on some of those. I'm not, I, I never really went through the movies and, and, um, and uh, saw, but the whole point is don't cheat you know, uh, these are the rules. Um, and for them, the purpose of those rules was completely different than the reason I'm telling you to write down rules. They're creating their own, they're creating artificial limitations because it forced them to be creative. Um, I'm saying you have limitations of your own. You don't have to make them up. You already have a long list of limitations, but, but write them down and create rules around them for the same reason that they did, which was to make you more creative, to, to, to get your, your uh, imagination going and your creativity. That's where the interesting stuff comes from. And so I say, you know, you have your list of resources and you have your list of rules. It's the melding of those two lists that one unique, one of a kind project exists. Um, uh, and you're you're searching for that one product project that comes out of you know these two lists. And when you do that, if you really follow that through to the end, you're 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 gonna have a unique project because no one has a, a list of resources and a list of rules like yours. Everybody has their own unique list. And if you're wondering what, you know, films get into Sundance, when we were, when I was at Next Wave and we looked at, you know, two, I don't know, three or 4,000 films during the time I was there, we were looking for films that we, that really were unique. That was the number one quality because we knew that's what Sundance and Toronto and whatever we're looking for. And, um, and so, uh, a lot of filmmaking is derivative, and and when you're making studio films, that's what you want to do. But when you're making you know independent films that are gonna that are gonna that are gonna get some attention, they're gonna put you on the map, that are gonna get people going. Who's that? Um, those films aren't necessarily gonna make money, but that but that's gonna get you to that next level. You want it to be unique, and this process kind of forces you to to make something unique, and if you really follow it. So anyway, that's the 
that's the idea behind it. Um, not everybody obviously is, you know, pure with that, but, uh, but some of the best projects, I mean, I, I use following as an example. Um, I don't think, you know, Chris ostensibly wrote down a list of rules or a list of limitations and a list of resources, but he absolutely worked from the resources he had available to him. And he certainly had limitations that he, that he used to his advantage, that he, he made opportunities out of. And so and the, perp, the the great example of it, uh, the most obvious example, if you've seen following is that um, it's a film that's told out of order and that's what really sets it apart. And it's, it's what he's you know done his whole career, but that first film. The asynchronous. You know, yeah. Yeah. Line. And the whole point, the whole reason he made that film out of order is he knew he was shooting uh, on a series of Saturdays. Um, It took him a year to make following on, you know, shooting Saturdays. And he knew he was going to have issues with continuity. So he said, I'm going to write a script that's out of order. So you won't notice the continuity mistakes. So again, it's, it's, that's a, that's a creative idea that's coming from one of these limitations that he turned into like a rule. So that's, oh, that's then what it's we're like, getting There's at. the genius, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> shines through. It's so great. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. My, phone, my watch is talking to me. No the success metric that I want to highlight that you, you've really called out, and something that I talk to my students about, especially because I have a lot of students who are writers, is as you you know, get more visible in the industry, people want to watch you. They don't just want to read your script. They want to see what you've done. And so this is a way that you're describing that you can leverage yourself into getting seen. Hey, look, you can watch this movie that I made. Um, Do you have a preference about, oh, you should aim for a feature or you should aim for a short or you should go for a doc? Do you have a prescription about that for your filmmakers? I mean, I think really it's up to the creator. I mean, you know, some people really want to make, you know, TikTok videos and and that's all they really aspire to make TikTok videos. My, my, you know, when I started doing this, certainly when I started just being interested in my, myself and my own career making movies, this was the eighties. And that's what, you, you know, you didn't make TV. TV wasn't like great. There wasn't, there was some good TV, but it wasn't like it is today. Like that's what you aspire to. Like the best, the best and the brightest weren't necessarily in TV. I mean, that's, that's dumb. There were obviously talented people on TV, but, but right I'm now, like, Night the, Rider, OG, <laughs> exactly. Magnum, come on. <laughs> obviously TV has gotten a lot better. It's a lot more, SNL, there's I a mean. lot higher esteem for, for that. And, um, and there's more money there and all these other reasons, but that wasn't the way it was when I started out. Um, and, um, uh, and there was no internet. So there wasn't any, you couldn't show what you could do on YouTube and TikTok and all this stuff. So, um, so, you, you know, my interest was always in features and I still love that, that form of like an hour and a half to two hour kind of, you know, it's beginning, middle and end and it's done kind of a form. Um, but as far as like strategically thinking about it, if you want to make, you know, YouTube videos and all that stuff, then that's what you do, you know, make those. And if you have money, you know, do them with a lot of money. If you don't make them, you know, you can utilize some of the same ideas and make those YouTube videos. If you want to tell 
longer stories or different stories, then feature films are there for you. If you want to do, you know, episodic type of thing, then I think the feature film is useful because it's not easy to do it yourself, make a TV show. You can do something, you can do web series or whatever, but if you want to, if you have this idea for like a, you know, eight, you know, uh, 10, eight episode, you know, series, that's eight hours long or whatever, that's really hard to just, I'm going to show them what I can do and go out and make an eight hour thing. You know, um, feature films are, 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 are pretty easy. I mean, uh, I know when you had read on, you talked about it, there's a high, you know, bar, a, a high, um, uh, what's the term? Um, uh, not bar, uh, uh, a barrier to get into it, but not, not really for feature films the barrier can be very, very low because you can make a film. There's a million examples of filmmakers who've gone out with their own dime and gotten their friends together and made, you know, made a feature film. And sometimes those turned out to be really amazing and put them on the map. So the, so the, the barrier to entry, at least to, to, to make something for a feature and a short and a, and a YouTube video, whatever is very low. Uh, so um, there's certain kinds of things, there's certain kinds of stories. That I think if you want to tell certain kinds of st stuff that like, that like short things on YouTube um, aren't going to get an audience for. So let's say you're, you you tell like something really dramatic or whatever that that may or may not you know blow up on YouTube. You know there's certain things that blow up on YouTube, and if that's not your the kind of things that you write, then you know maybe a short film or a feature film uh, is the place to begin. And I would say to you if you if you want to make sh shorts all your life, then make shorts. If you eventually do want to make a feature then make shorts, don't spend a lot of money on them, don't spend really any money on them, but make shorts to prepare you for that feature and then make a feature. If you wanna make features, start making features. Um, but but it's I, I, I I'm a big believer in, in practicing and learning your craft and figuring out really what your voice is. Who, who are you as a filmmaker? What's your unique voice? Um, I had Jay Duplass in my class as a guest speaker um, years ago, and he made this great point about, you know, the du Duplass brothers went out and made feature films that no one's ever seen before they did the puffy chair um, that didn't work out. Um, this is what he, they claim. Uh, and, and actually a, a lot of Chris Nolan made a feature film before following that he never finished, that he just abandoned because it didn't work out. Um, and I think a lot of other filmmakers have said this. Um, and uh, with the Duplass brothers, it wasn't until they were kind of goofing around and they made, they, they came up with this idea for a short film that I can't remember. It's like, uh, it's, it's just, a guy trying to leave a voice message. Um, Mark Duplass is trying to leave, and, and, you, and all this like anxiety and stuff comes out with him trying to, to record this voice message, an outgoing voice message for his for his phone machine. Um, and oh, when they not did even that, for someone he's attracted to, this is for like his voicemail. Yeah, he's so like, you know, hello, you've, okay. you've 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 reached, you know, Mark, you know, please leave an, a number, and then he and then he messes it up and he tries to do it again. This film got into Sundance. It cost them five dollars to make. They own the equipment. It was a five dollar DVD tape, and crazy. so. Uh, but it was in the making of that that they kind of realized, oh, this is something that we do really well. And then the puffy chair was the extension of that idea. They'd made probably more than one short kind of where they figured out their voice. And then they made the puppy chair. It was like a $15,000 film that got into Sundance that was like, here's our, here's who we are as filmmakers. This is what we do. And people could look at it and go, oh, I, you know, and a feature 
uh, it, unlike a short or unlike a YouTube video, even today, it's a little different because there, there's so much stuff going on uh, in the in the media marketplace or whatever. But a feature is still a, a thing that we can, you know, that can take you into the zeitgeist that we can, you know, that we can, you know, put on platforms and you can watch on your TV and that you can get people to get excited about or whatever. And so, um, you know, once they did Puppy Chair, then uh, everything they made after that still had that that kind of voice. And so I would say, if you don't know what that is yet, figure that out. And, and making short films is a great way to figure that out. Just don't spend a lot of money on them because um, uh, they, they, they're they not going to make the money back and it's not necessary um, uh, to do that. There's, you know, there's so many different ways you can make a short. And I, and I would also say, um, I think Ted Hope was the one that said this, like, don't worry about success when you're doing this. It's all about the process. And, and let's don't, let's try to make as many failures as we can, you know, um, uh, and take those kind of risks and be bold. And, and, and those are just little other bits of advice I would kind of throw into that whole mix. Process, not product. It's hard to think of yeah. that when the product is we're like, hey, it's got to be a movie. It's a product. <laughs> but to remember, there's this learning process that's going to happen where you will get to make discoveries and those happy accidents like that, you know, will be um, your project under the lens of whatever limitations you're putting on it to make those discoveries, almost like the alchemy of your project. It's like, now you're going to turn lead into gold. Here's all the lead you have. Right. <laughs> You've got $5 or five grand or however much you have. Are there any... I'll just say this, I add to this. The great thing about no budget filmmaking in particular is it allows you to to, to think I'm, it's not about the, the, the end result. If you're making something for $10,000 and you blow it, no big deal. If you're going out and you're raising a million dollars and you, you know, it, it was all the, the savings you you will ever have in your life, plus your your parents and your best friends and all this stuff, and they're all putting it on the line and they're all hoping, you know, it, you know, then the idea that you're going to take risks and you're going to be bold and that you're going to not worry about the 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 end result, that's like you can't do that anymore at, at that level or or two hundred thousand or a half a million dollar level, you know. So it's like. You, you're you're going to be less likely to make the kind of thing that's going to put you on the map when you're like under all that pressure and it's your first feature and all that kind of so stuff. So make the movie with play money. <laughs> don't go too far. Don't go too far with it. So you actually can explore and experiment and have the fun that you can have with right. it. What? Okay. Let's say somebody has got a no budget. It's $5. It's five grand, however much they have. What are the line items on the budget that you're like, mm, you definitely should not skip over these things. Is that like right. insurance? What are you, what is your recommendation? Yeah, so, so well, starting, if you start with insurance, uh, insurance is one of those things that once the project gets a certain size, like in terms of people and, and elements and things you're putting into play, then you're going to want insurance. But if you're if you're talking about a five thousand dollar movie, you're you're we're not talking about SAG actors because they're a SAG actor right now uh, is you're talking about casting like, your family. A, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking of Tiny Furniture and Lena Dunham right now. Exactly. But, um, <laughs> All yeah, my you, family members. You're you now your best in friend movie. who's who you know is great. Now that the world doesn't know is great, but you know is great. You write something that they can do, and you know. But yeah, that's what you want to do with the five thousand dollar level SAG actor today. For if you work them one minute, is uh, with fringes is like three hundred and thirty dollars because with you know with P and H and all that stuff. So that's expensive, and you're not going to be able to do that. Um, uh, but generally, if you're if you're shooting here in Los Angeles, the big line items, the biggest line item in terms of costs and 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 other issues is the location. So if you have a place to shoot, 
um, uh, you, that's definitely one of those things that you want to write down on your list of resources. Like I, I have my apartment, I have a, uh, a lake house that a friend has or, or whatever. Um, I, I know that there are people that, that think this way. I just saw this film that Dan Mervish, my buddy made called 18 and a half. It's a really great, um, uh, feature that he, you know, he did that's playing around the country right now. And that the beginning of that idea came from, he had, uh, not to go on the whole story, but he, he, he had been staying at this little motel in, in New York, upstate New York or whatever. And the guy said, yeah, you know, we're pretty busy here in the summer. And then there's nobody here at, in, during the winter. And he's like, hmm, maybe I could see ah. a film here in the winter. And that was the beginning of this whole Nixon era movie and whatever. So I, I feel the same way when I see a location, I'm like, wow, you can shoot a great movie here. There's production value, there's scope. We could be here all day long. No one. Yeah, what are those ski lifts doing in the summer, yeah, Mark? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so um, it's just really tough to do that here in Los Angeles. But I, you know, I've done it. Um, uh, that's how we, you know, do the projects that I, I do. But um, but anyway, so you you know you you're going to need a location. You're going to need some actors. They don't have to be sad. They can they don't have they can work for free. You're gonna you know you're gonna need a few crew members. But if you're, again, depending on what you're trying to do, and if you keep it small, and the more you know how to do yourself, the more you've learned, the better friends you are with certain people. It's, it's if you're not, a, if you don't shoot yourself, it's great to have somebody that shoots uh, who like, you know, y'all are best friends and maybe they'll do it for free. Again, if, the, if we're making a $5,000 movie, you have to make almost everything free because uh, you have to decide I can't spend money on anything. And then, and then maybe you'll keep it under $5,000. That's another rule of mine in my class is, you know, to make a, how do you make a no budget film? You have to refuse to spend money like everywhere. And, and if you have a hundred thousand dollars, you have to do that a lot. Um, even though you have a hundred thousand dollars, you do it at, at $5,000, you have to do it almost every single line item. Um, but again, you know, you're not trying to make every kind of movie. So, uh, you know, if it's a two, two or three character thing set in your apartment or, or, and, and you could set it anywhere. If you're not, if you're not getting permits, you, you know, and you have a small camera or whatever, you can kind of go anywhere you want with a tiny crew. It doesn't have to be a one location. I don't, you know, I'm not a big proponent of the one location, 10 day shoot, even though my last movie was essentially that. Um, but that's most of my movies are absolutely not that. And some of the great no budget films I can recommend are not one location to two actor kind of movies. Um, but you know, those are certainly so equipment, equipment's really easy. Um, uh, you can, you know, you could shoot with an iPhone, you could shoot with a, uh, a used GH5, which you could probably pick up for 300 bucks or something. There's all kinds of a million cameras out there that'll, that'll do the job. Um, you know, some, uh, some, some sound recording equipment, maybe you have a sound, can find a sound person. Maybe that's the one person you pay is a sound person who has some gear, um shows you how uh, important sound is yeah exactly i mean it's got a sound <laughs> gotta you know, have it there's like it's it's an on and off button with sound i mean there's there's with, with with cinematography it's a continuum you know from like crappy to 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 amazing and you know you your film might not need amazing it might fit right in the middle but sound is either it works or it doesn't work and you have to have you know have to have it working but um, anyone who's shot in la has had the experience with their their sound person going hold for the plane, right, hold for the exactly. truck, hold for the plane, hold for the truck. <laughs> and I'm sure it would be worse in New York too. Uh, with like, it's like you can't even hold; you just have to have it going on. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, so so things like that, like you know, again, insurance is important. But if you're really really small, you know, and you're it, you're not putting a lot of people at risk or whatever. Um, those friends that you've gotten around you aren't going to see you when they trip, you know, a curb on your set or whatever. Um, 
I mean, you're going to need an editor. And if you had to pay for an editor, because an editor, you know, it's one thing to pay a cinematographer for three weeks of work, but an editor is maybe three months of work or two months of work. And so it's hard to find an editor uh, unless they're, unless you're, you know, you can find people like this on Craigslist or maybe again, it's someone, you know, or maybe you learn how to edit or you can edit it to a point and bring in a real editor or whatever. Um, there's ways to kind of get around the price of what an editor might cost. Um, uh, but there's always going to be these things. Production budget. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I used to say this, you know, when I was teaching, uh, like I, I do a, a case study of that driver X movie that, that you mentioned. Um, that was like a really difficult movie for me to do. Um, uh, it had 50 speaking parts. I don't remember how many locations, um, there were name actors in it. Then the lead actor was a name actor. I mean, he was a friend of ours. Um, and he worked for, you know, scale or whatever, but, um, but we, we had, we shot that movie finished, you know, DCP to for $130,000. And it's just not, when you look at it, I mean, whether you like the movie or not, it's not a $130,000 movie. There's a lot of elements and stuff going on and it was just really hard. Um, and I remember when I put that budget together, cause I thought I was gonna have about a hundred thousand um, dollars. One of the numbers I, I, I wrote down on the budget, like, you know, before I, I, I wasn't gonna have enough money to make that movie. So I just I, you write down, the way I do budgets, I write down the things that I know are gonna cost me. SAG actors are gonna be this much. Um, I can't adjust that. That's just what it is. Insurance is gonna be this much. And I like to spend around $15,000 for post sound. That unfortunately uh, is almost impossible to do the way I used to do it today because I'm finishing a movie right now. And and um, to work with a post facility that I like is they're just not fifteen thousand dollars anymore. But 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 that's a but that, but that's a lot of money for a small budget film. Um, but then this film that I did after that, which was a forty fifty thousand dollar film, I had four thousand dollars to do all the post sound, and and we did it. And it and I'm very proud of the, the way that movie sounds. Um, so it's not that it's impossible to do these things. Um, uh, and the other thing about post, which uh, especially finishing the stuff that happens after you lock picture is that if you if you make something you're like we made this five thousand dollar movie and you lock the picture and it took you years to to lock the picture and you're like and you start to show it to people and people are like oh my god this is really good then you might say oh well it's probably worth spending a little bit of money uh even if we don't have it to to, to on the finishing stuff on the sound on color correction or or you know music or or score or whatever because you know you you now can look at it and see that and you can go on kickstarter and raise money all the kickstarter projects i've done i've done, I've, I've had uh, three successful campaigns <clears throat> they were all done in post we we scrambled together some money to make the film and then we when we did our kickstarter we were able to show them here's what we're kind of working on, you know, here's who's in it, you know, you can really see it and then you can decide oh, whether you genius. want to do it. I and love it, that. Yeah, it works. I like, like that. Look at what you're investing in, look at what we have, and then they can see it and get excited by it. And then they know exactly probably what your needs are at that right. point, which makes so much sense. Let's talk music cues. It comes up over and over with the filmmakers that I talk to It's like, oh, but I'm dreaming of this music or I have this cue that I'd love to use just for the festival. Talk to us about music cues and aspirational music and how yeah. to think about music. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, just immediately I say, don't use any any song you've ever heard on the radio, any song by any normal band, or even if you think they're obscure, it's an obscure '80s band. It's like if they're if they're they're likely light the 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 uh, uh, the 
publisher is probably a big company. You're not going to get a deal with that. You know, Warner Chapel is not going to make a deal with you. Even if the artist, even if you know the artists, um, they usually don't control the rights. And um, and I just went through this with Driver X, so I have some some more recent experience. But but the best I've seen a lot of great no budget films where people just knew someone on the team knew like local artists and got you know music done. I did a um, I did a, a pretty it was a re- relatively big movie. It was a horror film that we paid the composer. I shouldn't say what we paid the composer because that's we didn't pay them very much and they were amazing um and then we licensed like six or seven songs and i think we i think we paid zero for the licensing because they were all friends um i am finishing movie now where we're going to pay a, a composer that i've worked with before a little bit of money it's not it's it's you know he's doing it for that amount of money um but it's not a, it's not a fortune and then all the songs and there's a ton of song cues i can't remember now how many are in there but we got them all from art Artlist, um, which is a subscription site, you, you subscribe for like a year, and you can you can have access to all these songs. And so we're I've never done one of those kind of deals before, um, but so we'll see what works. But but the songs are amazing. We've I've already seen the songs and how they're working with the, with the picture, and and so um, and that's not terribly expensive. Um, and then I on Driver X, I think I licensed 14 songs. We actually wanted the music was really important to the movie, and we actually were willing to spend more money. We had a, a Grammy Award winning composer uh, composing the, the the score, um, and we paid her. You know, we worked with her before, and we paid her a little bit more than we worked with her on the pr- previous movie, just because that's what you hope to do with people you work with, although you, you don't always get to do that. But on that one, um, she was kind of our, and this happens a lot. This happened with The Last Days of Capitalism, where the composers became our music supervisors because they're, they're both of them were uh, on both those movies were musicians. They had a lot of musician friends and they were going out and they were finding music for the for the movie. And we were willing to pay something and we would, we would say, we're going to give you a, a kind of a token license fee because we want to pay you something. And um, on... Uh, on Last Days of Capitalism, where we had a tiny budget, you know, we didn't need that many songs. We paid like, you know, maybe $100 or $200 or something on on Driver X, where we had a ton of songs. We did like a Most Favored Nations. It was a really small number, but it added up because we had so many songs. But again, um, it you know, it's, it's possible. It just takes a lot of work. And if you're not a music person yourself, if you're not like going to see bands all the time or have relationships with, you know, you know, music people or whatever, it can, it can, that can take a lot of time, but often there are people in your circle who do have those relationships. And I've seen some amazing or heard amazing music in no budget films that people got for free or paid, you know, hundred or $200, but you have to realize you're paying, it's two licenses. There's the, there's the uh, sync license and the, and the publishing license. So there's the, there's the recording of that song and then the underlying, you know, publishing rights of that song. So I just, just, just stay away from anything that's famous. Um, and, and you mentioned festival rights, stay away from festival rights. That's just an invitation to, to bone you later on. I mean, you'll pay $500 for a festival right. And then you'll, and then you won't be able to use that song once you get distribution and the distributor's not going to give you any money. And likely, you know, it's really easy to get your film distributed these days. You can, you can work with any number of aggregators and get it onto a platform and people can see it on, on Amazon prime or whatever, or Tubi. Um, but there's no money. Distributors are not going to give you an advance. They're not going to give you money to, to finish your movie. Um, they are going to require that you have all those rights. And so I would, you know, you're making a no budget film, just stay away from, from any kind of famous songs. Yeah. Interesting. Do you have any idea 
in terms of the distribution deals to the free platforms like Tubi? Like, what are the filmmakers getting out of that? Or is it just like, hey, we're going to put up your movie on our platform where everyone can see it? Dan, do you have any idea? What yeah, well, I, I can tell you, I can give you two examples, and I won't be terribly specific here. But um, so I'm working with, uh, I've seen films released, the my previous film, uh, uh, Driver X, and then my most recent film, we uh, a very small movie. We went out through Indie Rights, which is a which is kind of a distributor aggregator. Um, they they make a really good deal for filmmakers in that they don't have recoupable expenses. So you uh, any traditional distribution deal, if a distributor spends a hundred thousand dollars releasing your movie, and that's easy for them to do because they're going to spend a lot of money on the, on the poster and the trailer. That might be twenty five or thirty thousand dollars right there, and then they have other expenses that they put those expenses, they have to recoup those expenses before they start to pay you, unless there's a some kind of a corridor or there's an advance. And, and often there's no advance and sometimes there's a corridor. Um, but basically, you know, first money comes in, they take their fee, then they recoup all their expenses and then they start to pay you. So if there's a lot of expenses, you know, ahead of, you know, that you're not going to see any money maybe ever. Um, and uh, Indie Rights doesn't have recoupable expenses. So, um, so the first dollar comes in, you're going to get your, you know, your percentage of that. Um, they're going to take their their piece, and then you're going to get, you know, the, the majority of the money, um, which is nice. Uh, now they don't do a lot of work. They're not do. They're not out there. They're not making a trailer and a poster for you, and they're not doing all these things. But um, but generally, a lot of the distributors who do put recoupable expenses in front of you will also not do a lot of that work either. So um, so any rights, I I really like my experience with them. Um, but uh, so. I know what I'm making on at least it's early, still early days for my movie, but I know I'm not making that much on, on uh, Amazon prime and Tubi. I mean, I'll see, we are about to get our big, our next quarter report, which comes at the end of this month. Um, will will tell us what we've, how we've done on Tubi. I, I have a kind of an idea. It's, it's okay. It's, it's some money though. Um, but I hey, do know some money. I mean, yeah, that's I mean, it's something, I mean, it's, I mean, believe me, you could, you could, you could do a film with IFC and they could pay, you know, we're on we're, uh, driver X. If you want to watch it is on Hulu and we got a We got a license fee from Hulu. Um, but again, because you know, of that, of those recoupable expenses and fees and stuff, I didn't get that whole license fee. I only got a little piece of it. So right. I might at the end of the day, make more money. I can't say it at this point, but I may make, make more money on the little movie that I went out with, with any rights than I did on the bigger movie with, with IFC films. I mean, it's too early to say, but, um, uh, but the, but I can tell you this, I won't say the name of the film, but I know of a film and there's a lot of films like this, uh, very, very low budget film. I wouldn't even say it's that great of a film. Um, I've seen the trailer and it, the trailer was, I thought was pretty terrible. Um, I thought the acting was like kind of substandard or whatever, but this was designed for an audience. The, the filmmaker knew the audience they were making the film for. They delivered to that audience and they delivered a film that that audience really liked. So I'm not that audience, but they delivered on it. And I know from the last quarter, and this is film's been out for a, a couple of years, they made $40,000 on Tubi on, the, on this last quarter, the quarter before this, this quarter we're in on maybe on a film that not. maybe cost a hundred thousand dollars. So, uh, so it's possible now, not every film. And I mean, I, I consider the last days of capitalism to be somewhat more of a, like an arty film. Like I wouldn't say, I'm not going to be pretentious and say it's an art film. It's not experimental or anything like that, but it's a, it's a very talky film that, you know, two characters in a hotel room doing a lot of talking. 
Um, I think the dialogue is really good. I think the acting is really good. And I think it looks great. I think we did a good job with it, but it's not a film for everybody. Whereas this is a more commercial, it's a, it's a, it's a crime thriller, you know, kind of a movie or whatever. And, and again, but for a very specific audience that that filmmaker really was able to aggregate and, and reach inexpensively through social media or however they did it. And, um, and, you know, to be, if you, you know, know anything about how these, these companies pay, like Amazon Prime, when you're when you get into Prime, you're getting you know pennies for uh, an hour of of viewing. And Tubi, I think it's a slightly better than uh, it's a few more pennies or whatever an hour. But a lot of people can potentially watch your your thing in there, and it does add up. And so there are filmmakers out there that are making money um, on Tubi, and and uh, and you'll see if you've gone through the the platform. There's a lot of old films that are like you know old. Sundance movies that I remember seeing 20 years ago at Sundance that are like showing up on Tubi because people are going, Hey, we're making money. People are making money on these movies on Tubi and they're getting back on Tubi. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a, um, it's kind of a, a boon for, for older titles that, you know, have the rights have come back to the filmmakers. They're looking around, they're like, I'm going to put my movie out and I'm going to get it on Tubi and maybe, you know, some people will see it and I'll make a couple bucks, you know? So it's a nice thing. That's great. And it's great for audiences, too, to have somewhere they can go to watch some of these movies for free. They do not have to pay for Tubi. Each of the studios has within their verticals, you know, one of the streaming platforms that is free, whether it's Pluto or Tubi. So the audiences can enjoy some of these movies. I imagine they're doing um, customer acquisition. So they're getting your name, your email address in order to see those films. But that's so awesome. The filmmakers are seeing some dollars back. Yeah. And I'll just say this about Tubi, because I'm I'm not a producer on this, but one of the movies I'm finishing is, uh, was, is a made for Tubi movie. My, I have a partner that I work with when I'm not producing, he's a line producer friend of mine. And we've done a bunch of films together. And when I, work with him i'm usually the production accountant dit which is a an odd combo um i'll be a pa and then i i'm the post-production supervisor on the back anyone who doesn't know what a dit is what's that i'm the data wrangler i'm the person so you know you're shooting with a digital camera the the footage is all ending up on on a card i'm the one that takes the card off and and lays it out on two drives and maybe I transcode or do other things to it. But I'm basically taking the, the footage off the, off the cards in, in, in a safe way that, so we won't lose it. And there's a backup. And then I'm giving the card back to the, to the, to the camera people. So that originally um, was to load the reels, right. And unload them. And yeah. Store yeah. Them. I mean, I've been around long enough. <laughs> Remember that? That? <laughs> yeah, I, I had to, I, the, what the second or third movie I did at when I got out here, um, uh, I was, uh, I started my film career, I guess you could say in Houston, more than 30 years ago, I worked on a, I was a PA on a, um, on a big, got a major TV movie in 1990. That was my first, like, like other than the films I made in college, that was my first real movie. And then I came out here in 94. And um, the second film I did out here was my friends were, were my friend of mine from college was, was running the studio at Corman. And I had done, I'd done like one or two Corman movies. And then we did this little tiny movie that was not technically a Corman movie. We're shooting at the stages and there was a, I was a second AD and I had, I was like PA and now I was second AD and I didn't really know the job. And, but there were so few people on that set that like there were, there were, and there were people that were not getting paid very much. I don't know if I was getting paid at all. And um, one day we didn't have a, an AC or we didn't have a loader, I guess. Maybe we had a first AC. So he was like, hey, come here. I'm going to show you how to load. I need you to load the, the film today. And I'm like, 
<laughs> you gotta be kidding me. And I had done that in school like a few years before. And I didn't, I was always like worried about doing it then. And I was like, please don't, please don't make me do this. I have so many other things I'm responsible for and I don't want to mess this up. And I absolutely messed it up. I put it in the wrong direction. And when they rolled, it just, it just spun out. And, and um, so, uh, you know, but I had to run sound on that film at one point with a Nagra, uh, the old tape, reel to reel tape player um at the you know like the 21st hour of, of a long long shooting day i'm like we need you to run the sound because the sound guy left and i'm like don't make me responsible for doing this but um this is, that, that's what, that was the way it was back in the day there's yeah. this great story from uh, john borman on zardoz remember the movie that sean connery had to make to get out of movie jail after yeah, james bond no familiar one with zardoz, although i've never seen it but he looks great with his, you know, so hair. no one would cast him he was uncastable because he had been james bond forever and everybody's like we don't want james bond in our movie so so john borman's like oh i'm gonna put you in zardoz they and and he has this vision of running him through the bluebells of that time of year in scotland you know in like wearing red Barbarella boots and straps of bullets, you know, across his bare chest. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, and that it, the very final scene of that movie is Sean Connery in significant makeup because he's been aged forward for that final character. And it, he hated having stuff on his skin. It took forever for them to get the makeup on him, you know, to age him in this particular way. And the poor kid who was like fresh out of film school, every time they got the take, just screwed up getting the film into the can. And then they, they had to do it all over again. And um, Sean Connery was ready to kill him by the end of the, by the end of the day. That by the time they'd shot that same scene four four times, and the poor kid had messed it up so many times. Like someone bring him a scotch, <laughs> you know, God. so he can at least enjoy the time while he's waiting with his makeup. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, Corman Corman was a interesting fun experience of like see your pants filmmaking that um i've carried over you know i i i you know it's funny because i i'm old and i've been out here a long time and i've i've never been interested from the very get-go when i came out here i was never interested in, in studio films or being in that world i mean now i'm like maybe Wait, i would you know, like give up I a wish. career on wall street or something to i, come I did here. yeah i i was a business major at university of texas i was in something called the business honors program mostly because i i wanted to do film and it was at, at a time when there wasn't a path for that at least if you were in texas there wasn't really a path for that and i snuck in and took film production classes even though i wasn't majoring in film um and i wanted to be a director and it was like at that time there was no slacker or el mariachi or whatever it was like spielberg you know like and which was ridiculous to think i'm going to be like spielberg and and i didn't even want to be like i didn't want to make movies like spielberg um, when Slacker and those kind of films came out, I'm like, that's exactly the kind of movies I want to make little, you know, movies that I can put together myself. And so anyway, I, for anyone listening, who hasn't seen Slacker, that is such a fun movie. It's so great to watch it. It's so clever how, yeah. how it, the story is strung together is really brilliant. Yeah. These, there were these early films, Stranger Than Paradise was maybe the, one of the first ones I saw that I didn't, it's not like my favorite, you know, no budget or kind of low budget film, but it was the one that you go, oh, I could do that. <laughs> you just look at it and you're like, that's what I can do that. I can make, I can do better than that, you know? And so, um, but I, when I graduated, I did two years of investment banking because it was 1987 and that's what everybody was doing at the time. And, and I could get a job like that. I went to New York and I was an investment banker and, and, um, and Merrill Lynch. And then, 
my father had a stroke, uh, a, a massive stroke right in the middle of my two-year program. And I went back to Houston and did the second year in, a, in the small investment banking office in Houston at, at Merrill Lynch. And then my best, one of my best friends that I grew up with, like since I was four, he used to, we used to do skits together and write things. He, he was a drama major uh, create a dramatic writing major at Duke. And he had started this theater in, in, um, in Fort Worth. And when I finished my two-year investment banking and I was in Houston and I was taking care of my family's, you know, money and this and that, he came back to Houston. He's like, let's start a theater in Houston. And we're like, yeah, let's do it. You know, and I had like no interest in, in taking investment banking and going to Hollywood and being in a studio or I, like no, no interest at all. And I were in this theater for five years and you know, performed in a bunch of plays and I'm a terrible actor. And I mean, that that's always been, that was a very DIY, same kind of principles involved in terms of, you know, no, no budget theater making or whatever, but What's it wasn't my now? dream. My dream was always really film. And so, um, uh, are you still friends with him? What's he doing? Oh okay, yeah, he's still my best friend. So he's um, still uh, your best friend. Yeah, oh, I have, you know, I I have love four that. best friends. My college roommate, who I did all the film stuff with. Don't tell me he became an investment banker, though. <laughs> yeah, no, um, yeah, I, you know, I still have friends from investment banking days, but um, uh, they all have like a ton of money. Uh, I didn't, I didn't go that way. My best. Now best you can be friend, like, hey, invest in my films. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I was going to say, my best best friend. I grew up down the street from this guy went over to his house every day, you know, from kindergarten on, uh, we went to the same high school, went to the same college. Uh, we both went to Merrill Lynch together, miraculously enough. And then he, when I, you know, we both finished our, our two-year programs, he went and got a, a, an MBA at Harvard business school. And I went and did this theater stuff. And, you know, it's like, our careers were like this. And then, and then it was just like that. And, you know, and now he's, you know, super successful and has a family and all this stuff. And I'm, you know, I'm not, and, um, uh, which is fine. Cause I, I, I didn't want all that. And, uh, but he did invest in my, my, uh, uh, into driver X, uh, which was, which was great. Um, I we actually that. made a film together when we were in like <laughs> eighth grade that. or something like a super eight, like edit and camera super eight. He was, he was Tarzan and then I was filming it. And then, and then he had to go out of town and then I had to be Tarzan and someone had to film me. It was <laughs> Complicated, it's like your son of Rambo's story. Exactly. That's awesome. It's great to have an investor in the wolf pack. There you yeah, go. Totally. <laughs> Somebody who's willing to, you know, and we, and every creative needs that. Every creative needs. You know, that. I'll tell you this. The, the nicest thing, you know, he, I knew he was going to help me and I didn't, you know, I didn't, I kind of expected it. And um, we did a big screening of the movie in Houston um, when it was, well, IFC was releasing it, they couldn't get a theater in Houston. And I just rented a big AMC theater and I invited like everybody from my high school. Um, uh, and we made it kind of a, a reunion, like a, it was like our 35th reunion. That's how old I am. Um, and, um, uh, and it was like this most amazing night, Patrick Fabian, the star of the movie, who's on Better Call Saul came to Houston. And you guys who are listening, by the way, can't see what a baby face he has, like no. not old enough to even say um, 35, you're 35. I'm well, sorry. No, that was 35 years ago, like a few <laughs> years ago. Um, so our, our 40th is coming up, but anyway, but this was like the most amazing night with this big screening. It was a movie made for people my age. I mean, the lead characters, like, you know, it was like a 50 year old or whatever. And, um, and uh, it was just a great night. People liked the movie. And, and he came up to me and he said, I said, listen, you know, I, you're probably never going to get any of your money back. And he goes, he goes, hey, you know, 
next time you need, you know, I'll give you 10 times that much money next time you need it. And I was, I mean, I'll never ask him for money because I don't want to lose more of my friend's money, but that's, that's the kind of, you know, friend he was to me. So I was um, like, wait, well, aren't you already on the phone to screenwriters? I mean, come right. on. <laughs> what won the blacklist last year? <laughs> um, but I'll just say this, you know, I was going to mention this about Tubi. Uh, I'm, I'm doing this Tubi movie and um, there's like a huge opportunity to make these made for Tubi or made for lifetime. Tubi's making they, they came out with a, you know, an article just recently, they're making a hundred original movies a year. Um, and they're in the like half million dollar range. So that, like, it, that's crazy. Yeah. It's <laughs> uh, and I'm not saying they're going to you know do your movie or whatever, but if you have a movie that you think fits the mandate and you can pitch it to one of the few companies that, that are, that are, that to be hires to make their movies for them. We, we were they have like a Hallmark model. Is yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Yes. I mean, it, and, and it's not the big, big Hallmark, you know, it's the smaller kind of Hallmark movies, but Lifetime Hallmark, Vinny, they all have these Vinny kind Hallmark. of. Hallmark. You know, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, if you're, if you want to show what you can do and you can write within that kind of, you know, format or something, you know. I think that is really cool. That's really cool. Talk to me about your relationship with IFC. It sounds like you worked for them and now you work with them and you guys sound like you're so, you're so close. Oh, you're not, not agreeing with that statement. I mean, so, so IFC, uh, finance the company I work for. So Peter Broderick, who's a genius and amazing is my mentor. He's like one of the smartest people I know. And, um, he came up with this idea for Next Wave Films in like 1995 or something. And um, uh, he pitched it around and IFC thought this is a great idea. And it was this idea of like, you know, we're going to create a fund and we're going to give finishing funds to all these movies like Clerks and, and El Mariachi that, that get to a point and then they get stuck in post. And this was still when people were shooting on film. And then we'll, get, we'll look at all these films on, on, on VHS and we'll see ones we think are good and then we'll give them finishing funds. And then we'll, and then we, at that point, we're not only just going to give them the money, we're going to oversee that, that process of, of how they spend the money, but then we're going to put together a whole strategy to get the film out in the world. And that, that started with mostly at that time, you know, getting it into a major film festival, like, like Sundance or Toronto. And so IFC said, yeah, let's look, that worked for them. They had their own kind of reasons for why that worked for them. And so for six years, um, we, you know, we were this like autonomous little company in Santa Monica, you know, financed by a bigger company in, in, um, in where, where was that place in Long Island? Um, Bethpage, um, it, cause they were owned by, it was a, it was a cable vision and, you know, it was a division of cable vision and all this. Um, and so, um, so I had a, a, a nice, uh, a relationship with like Jonathan Searing, who was the head of IFC and some other people that were there at the time. And, um, uh, but they're busy people. And, you know, once IFC, uh, once eventually, the, you know, the, the next wave folded and, and um, we kind of all went our separate ways. I still very close with Peter. I still do work with him um, in different ways. And um, he's still very much like my consigliere and gives me advice and all this. Um, and I've stayed, stayed somewhat in touch with some of the people at IFC. But, um, but this was, this was, I would say this was more of a handshake more of an arm's length kind of a deal. It wasn't, I mean, I did know the person I was reaching out to. Um, I knew her back in the day, um, the head of kind of acquisitions. Um, but the big reason we went with IFC uh, was because their sister companies, AMC and, and pa Patrick Fabian was on an AMC show. And we knew that they would be, we hoped that they would be interested in that um, and, their, and, and the possible co-promotion opportunities for that. Um, and so, and we also, you know, I'm, I respect IFC's 
the films that they do they the you know they do a lot of films but they're but they're they're high quality and they're films that you know often they'll play in can and you know there may be an english film or something that plays in can and then they'll do the the u.s release of it or whatever and um and they had their midnight section as well but we were in uh, uh what they call their Sundance selects. And, and I just, you know, if I go back and look at all the Sundance selects films, it's films that I'm really, you know, I think are really good films. And, and um, uh, so we wanted that stamp of approval on our movie. We, we wanted to think that we wanted people to think sorry, that our film was, was um, sorry, my watch talking again. Um, we wanted people to think that we had a good film. And, and um, so that was a good, you know, match for us. Uh, um, you know, even if, uh, even if, again, you know, when you do these kind of day and date theatrical deals like you do with IFC or Magnolia or whatever, they're going to have to spend a lot of money on your movie and and it's harder to get to maybe get past, you know, you have to do really well in the transactional phase to be able to get, you know, to see any kind of money on the back end, you know, um, but they will get the film out there. So This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. What kind of movie are you interested in making next? I don't know. I, I said I was after driver X was, was so hard. I just said, I'm done. <laughs> Retired from producing. Uh, and then I produced uh, uh, last days, but that kind of came to me a little bit differently. Um, I, I think it's really, I'm, I'm not actively out looking to, to produce things. I'm not looking. I mean, I read scripts every once in a while. I, I have friends, um, uh, but I'm pretty busy right now. I'm doing, I'm in post on three films for with, with Liam and we're hoping to maybe do some, to you know, especially this Tubi movie that we're finishing is a success. We're hoping to do more of those, um, and um, uh, but there's always that like what works for me usually is something will come to me. Either it's a person, it's a personality or a person or a piece of material or an idea that I just get really excited about that I think can be done this way. And 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 the reason why I get excited about this way is because I know this way means it can get done. Whereas like I I've I've been in uh, I've been a producer on a movie for another filmmaker that I worked with, um, and it's a great script, but it's going to cost millions of dollars. And we've been messing around with it for a few years, and it's not my expertise. To, I don't, you know, to go out and raise millions of dollars, even though I think we could. I think I know a way to make that film on the lower end of that scale and make it a great movie. And I love the movie, and it's really timely. But that's just like it may never happen. You know, I I can't make that film happen. I'm not. I don't. That's not my what I do. But if someone brings to me a smaller idea like like uh, Adam Mervis, who came to me with the last days of capitalism. I'm like, oh, let's do this. Let's just, and we, we like, he came to me with that idea. We were shooting a couple months later. We were finished a few months after that and, and the movie's done. And that's, that's really where I like to come from, like getting things done and, and, um, and not spending years of your life without even ending up with anything. And that's the great thing about no budget filmmaking is that you might, might take you years to make something, but you'll be making it. It'll, it'll be finished and you can, you know, put it out there. It's not, I have a lot of friends who've made one film and then there've been, you know, they, they made it themselves and then they were hoping for, you know, something to happen and it didn't happen or it's almost happened. And then it's been 10 years and mm. they haven't made their second film yet, you know, um, because it's right. that hard to kind of get things 
off the ground. So. And for a true artist, it just absolutely sucks to be sitting around waiting for someone else to give you permission to go do your art. Right. Like that is a horrible feeling. And and those of us who love film, love making film, you know, we want to go make film. <laughs> yeah. And I think the personally the ideas I get excited about are usually small ideas. They don't have to be made on a big budget. And and um I do a lot of visual effects. Dude, uh, I'm filming a movie right now, a short with my dog and my son. Because we're oh, also madly we're also madly in love with our dog. And the, but you the are short... paying your son the minimum wage, right? <laughs> Don't tell him that. <laughs> well, we love our dog so much that the movie is literally called the dog. dog Dog Love because yeah. he's so he's so awesome and he's a movie star dog. So we're what like, you know, what kind of dog? He well, we joke that he is a Roddy Cocker Wawa because oh, he's wow. totally a border rescue, and it's definitely somebody's Rottweiler got into someone's yard with a cocker spaniel type of situation. <laughs> I adopted a short haired puppy and by every week I would wash him and like more curls would appear. And I was like, what, what is this dog? <laughs> and we were told he was a German shepherd mix. That was not even true. We did his DNA. There's no German shepherd in this puppy. Um, so yeah, no, we just had so much fun with it. And I was like, we're going to make this movie for my family. <laughs> it's going to be just this little short. That's super fun. And something that as a filmmaker, that I just geek out on that I love is they have GoPro harnesses for your dog. So you can put a GoPro on your dog's chest or like right between their shoulder blades. My dog has really fluffy ears and you can see his little fluffy ears running. And it's, a, of course, it's a dog escape movie where, you know, they're reunited with a happy ending at the end. But yeah. Wow, that fun. sounds exciting. I mean, I love this. That, so that whole kind fun. of let's put on a show is yeah. the whole thing that I, the, the reason I like, there's two parts of filmmaking that I like the whole let's put on a show and it doesn't require all this mechanism. And then also the part I look just the part I'm in it for is something is being able to show people something that I've worked on really hard. Even if I was the producer on the films that I've produced, like something like driver X, I mean, I, you know, and I worked, that's a fifth film I did with that director, but I did, a, I did so much of that work myself because I didn't have the money to pay people. And I, and there's a real, you know, I didn't write the script and I didn't act in it and I didn't direct it, but I did so much other things that I really feel like some ownership. And yeah. I, and, and I, you know, I had to say, you know, I had opinions and things that are, that are in there. And when you have that feeling of like, I, I did this, I made it, you know, whether if you wrote it or you directed it or whatever, and you made it that feeling of like, now I, I know who would like it. And I really want to show those people who are going to love it. And you get that experience of showing it, people like it. That's like, that's it for me. That's the big Aww. reason. I'm in it. And, and, um, and this is the sad part about the whole Tubi and, you know, there's opportunities now with Tubi and, 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 or any of these VOD things, but you don't get that, you don't get that same feeling as you do when you, you know, can be in a room and, you know, show it to people in a room like you can at a film festival or in a theatrical screening and stuff. And, and so, um, but the, it's, but, but anyway, that I just love that idea of like working with your, your, your family on something like that. That just sounds fun. You know, I, I wanted a time capsule for my son with his beloved dog, you know, dogs don't live very long and childhood goes by super fast. And I was like, we're making this for your 25 year old self who may not have this dog anymore. You know, it's just make sure the sound is good. <laughs> exactly. Um, let's talk finally resources. 
What do you recommend for filmmakers? What books should they read? What website should they go to? And I know that you also teach classes. So how can they find you? Yeah, so uh, that's a good question because uh, I haven't been reading as much as I, you know, maybe did when I started out. And um, and I'm sure there's some amazing books. I mean, the one, the one I would say, the one book I, I am familiar with, um, and I'm going to get the title wrong. It's around here somewhere. But Dan Mervish, who I mentioned, made this film, 18 and a Half, He's written a couple of books. I think he, I think he wrote like a updated. Uh, it's the, this is the thing. I mean, he's going to kill me for mentioning this book and then not being able to say the name of it. It's the, it's the cheerful. Mm, it's it's. Just look up Dan Mervis. I am <laughs> on, looking. On I am looking him up. But is it M E R V I S H? Yeah, M A R V I S H. Um, the cheerful whatever's guide to filmmaking or whatever. Uh, the uh, he's a he's yes, a, the cheerful subversives guide to independent filmmaking, and you too can get it on Amazon. Oh, he's got a few of these actually. Yeah, he's got a, he he had a, a new version of it that just came out, and um, I mean that's a book that I mean he's a he writes about all kinds of different things for filmmaker magazine and whatever. He's a really smart guy. He's very good at this stuff of like figuring out how to do things yourself and all this and he's just been around for a long long time he 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 was one of the co-founders of slam dance and um uh he's made several feature films that are all really great and they're all just made on you know with they're generally the budget is a little higher than mine but but made for way lower than what they should have cost and 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 um but he's also just really funny and and very you know he's very gifted in 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 and uh um, I was, that's a fun read that book. Um, obviously read Martin's book. You got, you had read on, um, there's some evergreen stuff in his book. Um, the real uh, truth is the is real truth. Book. Yeah. R E E L. Um, and you know, there's great websites. Uh, uh, I, I have less time to read, but you know, no, no film, school which is not no budget film school but no film school obviously you know has a lot of great stuff i've written an uh, article or two for them um uh but uh you know i would tell people to go to my website nobudgetfilmschool.com but it's it's so terrible it's it doesn't it's an old old website that i haven't had time to 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 i've been wanting to re completely redo it and make it a wordpress site and all this like stuff and i've been so busy and there's some block in there that I don't know exactly what it is. I've already paid like a deposit to do the work and I just haven't done it. Um, but there is still, there are still things on that site that I'm proud of, but it's just, it's just a, it doesn't really work anymore. I, I can't update it. And, um, uh, but, but um, you know, if you subscribe to my, my newsletter, which is, I, I guess if you go to nobudgetfilmschool.com, there's a subscribe button there. Um, you know, if you're interested in no budget filmmaking and you're interested in any of the classes I that I do, and now I'm doing them on Zoom. Um, I'm hoping to, to go back and do my two-day uh, art and science and no-budget filmmaking class again um, live, because I just love doing it live. It's, it's so much fun, and there's great networking opportunities and all that. But currently, I, I'm doing a lot of stuff on Zoom. I have a number of like free programs that I do. Um, there's something I call No Budget Confidential. I've done about seven or eight of those, which is, uh, it's, it's it, I don't know if it'll stay free, but right now it's been free. Um, where I, you know, it's a like usually there's like two hour zooms with a, a, a single filmmaker where we talk about a no budget successful no budget film that they made, and we just go through the whole story of making it. We show I show clips of of the of the movie. We show behind the scenes photos. It's you know we get really in the weeds. Um, often I'll show clips of things that they did to prepare to make that film. So like short films or whatever they did. We I had a um, a, a great filmmaker. 
uh, on. She had um, she had been a wedding photographer and she learned a lot of doing wedding photography. We showed some of her wedding uh, videos that were really beautiful and and you could see where they were different from like your traditional wedding video and how she kind of you know what she learned from making those that uh, m videos to that translated into her first feature that we did. Um, and so uh, I'm very proud of that, of a lot of these, uh, these different things that I do on zoom and, um, uh, and uh, let's see what else. Um, and what's so great about the zoom classes is that people can access them from anywhere. I teach the entertainment business school on zoom. And I love that, you know, folks who are in like Alabama who never could have accessed a program like this before or Australia or India or France, you know, students in the UK, like they can, they can sign on, they can join, they don't have to fly to Los Angeles. I think that's maybe a silver lining of the pandemic for this kind of information getting out there, being accessible. And so much of it is free. I mean, there's so many groups that are doing free stuff, um, uh, I mean, when I teach a class, it's more, I mean, these, these, the things that I do are structured in the sense that they're outlined. I've spent a lot of time before I, you know, do it with the filmmaker and multiple interviews with the filmmaker and a lot of time, um, uh, which is why I may charge eventually, but, you know, uh, but most, you know, but just to, to listen to a filmmaker talk, there's a lot of people doing that and they're, and they're generally, those are free and you can learn so much, especially if they're a filmmaker doing something that you'd like to do. Um, I mean, the thing about No Budget Film School on my list is it's very specifically about making a film with no money. And so, uh, you know, when I have guests on, that's the focus. If I have a VFX person on, which I'm hoping there's a friend of mine I want to get on, and I've been doing a lot of VFX on, on all my movies. You know, I've got 49 shots on the movie I'm finishing right now and, and 270 on the Tubi movie, but that's not a no budget film. Um, you know, but there's people can, we can start to think about doing VFX on on no budget film. So if I bring on a, on a, on a VFX person, we're not going to talk about VFX that you could never afford. We're going to talk about the kinds of things that you can be doing on a no budget film. That's going to save you money and, and how to prepare for those and do them right. So they don't cost you more on the back end. And, you know, there's a lot of lessons like that, that I've learned. Uh, just and Mark, what I love about this is that it's also an on-ramp into film and TV for marginalized voices, marginalized communities, folks who would never have been able to get into film, you know, even 10, 15 years ago, who now it's like, oh, we can think about it this way. This means there's opportunity here. And I, those are the types of stories I'm interested in seeing more of for sure. And, and really the benefit I was telling you about these, these kind of filmmakers that they can get onto a Tubi or, or Amazon prime. And if they know their audience, if they're under, you know, if they're like an, an underserved, if they're from an underserved audience and they're making a film for that underserved audience, then they're going to make, they're going to do the best in this situation, you know, on the back end anyway. Um, oh, I mean, you know, it's when you make a, a kind of general art film that doesn't have a real niche audience or whatever, that's where, you know, like the, like the one I just did, <laughs> that's a hard one to find an audience on like Tubi or Amazon or whatever, but it's really about finding the, you know, the niches and making something for them and knowing how to connect with them. I love that. That's why I'll be making surf movies for the rest of my life. I love I love telling stories about surfers, surf movies, etc. We're still talking about point break. <laughs>
was it? I, I, Blue Crush. I mean, come on, Endless Summer. My ninth grade history teacher, Mr. Stolper, showed us Endless Summer. I've seen, you I know, saw Endless Summer. Oh my God, it's so when I was, It must I mean, have been like 1969 I saw that film the first you time. You watch that movie today and still fall madly in love with surfing. It's and it's on, I just saw, it's either on Tubi or Amazon. It's on some platform <laughs> available to watch. You the know. endless, endless summer. Exactly. <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This has been my pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Please like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander can be reached on Twitter for your questions or comments at This Is Kaya. Get entertainment business career training, as well as a free special report, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you. Thank you.